The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Uh, we're opening uh, the Word of God now to the book of Isaiah. And so let's open together to Isaiah's prophecy in the Old Testament. And uh, I'll be reading from Isaiah 53, starting at verse 1. Uh, and I will read all the way through verse 7 tonight, but we'll be focusing especially on verses 4, 5, and 6. So open with me to the book of Isaiah. It's on page 613 of a pew Bible. And we will hear God's word from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah this evening. But first, as you're turning there, let's pray and ask God's blessing upon his word. Our great God, we thank you that as we gather on this Good Friday, we have the time to open the scriptures together, to consider Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, to consider Jesus first in his estate of humiliation as he took on flesh to suffer in our body that these bodies of ours might be redeemed as well as our souls. We think of him now in his a state of exaltation, risen, seated at your right hand. And Lord, we want to have our hearts filled with love for Jesus. We want to have our minds filled with the contemplation of who he is and what he has done. Lord, I pray that no matter how many times we've thought upon the cross and how many times we've thought upon the Lord Jesus, that you would stir in us a, a fresh thankfulness for what Christ has done for us as we remember our desperate need for his ministry. Lord, we could never stand before you in our own merit, never present to you the works of our flesh, but instead, Lord, we run and find shelter in the Lord Jesus, hiding ourselves in his wounds, clothing ourselves in his righteousness that we might be acceptable in your sight. And so, Lord, send your spirit now to Teach us to illuminate our minds, to strengthen our hearts, to hold fast to our confession. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And so let's hear God's word from Isaiah, starting in chapter 53 and verse 1. As the prophet Isaiah speaks the word of God, saying, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by man a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. 
He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God abides forever. Like I said, we're going to be looking especially at verses 4, 5, and 6. So let's uh, keep our Bibles open here in Isaiah chapter 53. Uh, and as we're thinking about that, there is, there is one particular word that I want us to reflect on uh, that Isaiah 53 is talking about that is a very appropriate word to consider during Good Friday. As we think about Jesus, as we think about his sacrifice, as we think about his death for us, and it's the word redemption. Redemption. Now, uh, redemption is oftentimes used in an improper sense, biblically speaking, but oftentimes we throw this word out all the time. And the, the most recent example of this, uh, this time last week on Sunday, was that Tiger Woods has redeemed himself, right, by winning the Masters. Tiger Woods has redeemed his career. The last major win was over 10 years ago and four back surgeries in just two years. And he had, of course, all that public scandal and all these things swirling about him. And to, to win the pinnacle of golf again is to climb back up from the ashes that his career was in. And he has redeemed himself, the sports commentators say. Uh, but redeeming one's self is not the way the Bible talks about redemption. Because redeeming is not something that you do for yourself, as the way they spoke about Tiger Woods. You don't redeem yourself. You are redeemed by another. Because redemption literally means to buy back, to purchase, to gain back into possession what has been lost. And so the Bible speaks of God the Father redeeming us, that is to say, purchasing us back from the estate of sin into which we have fallen and purchasing us to come be a part of his family. And redemption always involves payment. Redemption always involves the transaction of some sort of price that's been established to pay for the person who is coming back to be redeemed. And usually uh, in the first century especially, it was spoken of as a slave owner buying back their slave from the slave market to come and live in their house where they would be safe, where they would have food, where they'd be taken care of, where they'd be provided for. Now as we think about payments and we think about this idea of redemption and purchasing and prices, uh, we have on our minds... Also, the fact that pretty much everyone here has been paying this past week, right? We paid the government. We paid the price. The question is, what do you owe? Everyone is asking that question. What do I owe? And we have to figure that out. And we have to pay the price for what we owe. And that is actually an appropriate way to think of 
the way God looks to us because the amount of our sin represents an amount that we owe. Our sin places us in debt to a holy God and our account is in the negative. And we owe God because of our sins. And God requires that our sins be paid for. The debt must be accounted for. God is going to collect on the debt and the government will collect upon what is owed to it. But the government is not altogether righteous. But God is. God will always collect on the debt that is owed to him. The question is, who will pay it? Who will pay the debt that I owe? Or another way is asking, who will bear the weight of my sin? Who will bear the weight of my sin? Because I cannot pay for it myself. If God requires the payment of my sin upon my life, then that means I must die because the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death. And so therefore, I cannot both pay for my sin and continue to live because death is required for sin. And so I find myself in a hopeless estate, don't I? If I owe God because of my sins, I cannot pay for them and live. And God teaches us this principle all throughout the Bible. In fact, that is actually the whole purpose of the Old Testament sacrificial system. If you've read through the Bible and you make your way into the Old Testament, especially the first five books, where you start reading about all the bulls and all the goats and all the lambs and all the rams and the birds and all these sacrifices, the reason why God mandated these things for Israel was because he was trying to teach them that sin must be paid for that blood must be shed to account for the debt of sin. But all throughout the Old Testament, for all the goats, for all the lambs, for all the birds, for all the animal sacrifices, there is not a single provision in the Old Testament that would call for a human sacrifice. It was only ever animals. It would be barbaric, Israel thought, for human sacrifices to be made. Which is exactly why the Jews had such a hard time wrapping their mind around this reality. Because all the sacrificial system that the Jews understand was about animals. And the Bible prophesies that there would be one who would come to be a sacrifice who is a lamb, metaphorically speaking, but a man in truth. People don't know what to do with this reality. Someone who goes to pay for my sin for me, a human sacrifice for the Jews, that was a stumbling block. They didn't get it. In fact, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that the whole idea of the cross was a stumbling block to the Jews, but it's not just a stumbling block to the Jews, it's still a stumbling block for people today. And I want to tell you how much I have taken that for granted. Because I live in my little Christian bubble and I talk to my Christian friends and I read my Christian books. And everyone around me, for the most part, agrees with this reality. But I remember the first time, the very first time, it really sunk into me that what Jesus was doing on the cross wasn't just demonstrating his love for me. It wasn't just showing me a way to be humble. 
but that Jesus was actually paying for my sin. I was 20 years old, sitting in the back seat of a car on the way down to Panama City Beach, Florida for a Christian spring break trip. And I was listening to a sermon that was teaching that. I had never understood that before. People oftentimes think about the death of Jesus and they think that's sad, he's a victim, oh what a shame. But without essential comprehension for what is happening, why is he there, what is going on? And one of the very central passages in all of the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, to explain that reality is in Isaiah 53, and that's what we're looking at. One of these central passages that talks about the servant of God. The Messiah is presented in Isaiah 53 as one who is a suffering servant. Uh, At the beginning of the chapter, Isaiah reflects on the fact in verse 1 that who has believed us? Who has believed what he has heard from us? This servant was one who grows up, verse 2, like a young man. But there was nothing about him that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. Verse 3 says he was despised. He is a man who was rejected. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is 500 years before Jesus. It's important that we remember that. And God reveals through the prophet Isaiah that the one who would come to be the sacrifice is one who we would not look upon with favor. Notice again at the end of verse 3, the one who God is doing this work through is one that other people turn their face from, that look upon him and despise him. And if we we think briefly about the fact that the name of Jesus is often despised, Isaiah is certainly speaking the truth here, that he is not esteemed, end of verse 3. And the reason why he is saying this is because that is the natural reaction that we have oftentimes to suffering. We don't like to look on it. We want to turn away from it. We want to hide our face. We want to despise it. Because those who suffer are not esteemed in our culture. And that weren't then either. The suffering servant is also a dismissed servant, dismissed by his own people. And the New Testament tells us that also in John chapter 1. That Jesus came to his own people, but they didn't receive him. They didn't want what he was offering to them because they looked upon him and said, That is not good. The reason why people think that, oftentimes the way they think about the book of Job, is that when they see someone who's suffering, they say, you must have done something awful to deserve that. That's what's in the minds of people looking upon people who suffer and saying, what did you do to deserve this? That's the question that Job's friends asked him. And deep within our minds, sometimes also when we suffer, we think, what did I do to deserve this? And that's the mentality that we have when we think about suffering. And when the people looked upon Jesus' sufferings, and when the people reading Isaiah 53 thought about the servant, they looked upon his sufferings, they looked upon Jesus and says, that's no Messiah. 
Look at him in all of his weakness. Look at him being tortured. Look at him being bruised. Look at him dying. That's no Messiah. They turn their face from him because we reject those who suffer because we conclude that something is wrong with this person. And so we have to ask the question, why is it that God would present his Messiah this way? If God was going to bring in a Messiah, wouldn't it make more sense for that Messiah to be majestic and honorable and people would flock to him and be drawn to him and come out of the woodwork to see him and know him and follow him? Why does he suffer? Verse 5 and 6 explains why Jesus comes the way that he does. Because, the short answer is, that if you and I were crafting this plan, If God had asked us in the counsels of our will, what should I do to work this plan of salvation? You and I would have never, ever come up with this plan that would cause people to look upon the Messiah and say, surely he's done something wrong, when in reality, that the Messiah is not suffering for his own sins because the Messiah is not guilty. The grief that he bears, the sorrows that he bears, and they're real sorrows, they're real griefs, right? It's real agony that Jesus experienced, but the grief and the sorrow and the sadness and the weight is not his, it's ours. That's the significant point. Do you see it in verse 5? Verse 4, 5, and 6 has this screaming contrast as you look at it. Whose grief, in verse 5, whose grief does he carry? Whose sorrow? And the answer is ours. See how Isaiah emphasizes this? Our griefs, our sorrows. You see that? In verse 4, our griefs, our sorrows. And it continues on in verse 5, this continuing contrast. He and our, his and our, his and our. Verse 5, he was pierced for what is ours, our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. And in Isaiah 53, 500 years before Jesus comes, Isaiah is explaining how we should understand the gospel, how we should understand the cross. And it's this principle of substitution that Jesus is suffering not for his own sake because he's guiltless. He is suffering in the place of other people who themselves are guilty. He is paying what we owe. And the answer is to the question, who will bear it? The answer is this Messiah. He will bear it. He can bear it. He can pay the price. He can bear the weight. Christ will bear the weight. He will carry our burdens. And it is itself the most basic idea in the scriptures, and yet it is so desperately misunderstood. It's the very heartbeat of the gospel, this idea that Jesus dies Not just to show us that he loves us and not just to show us a way, but he dies in our place, in our stead, in our room, as is often said in the old church. Jesus' death for sinners, and Paul summarizes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said that he made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so we must understand this very clearly. The gospel, the good news of the gospel, is not just that God forgives our sins. Even though that's good and right. The gospel is not just that God forgives his sins, 
but that God forgives our sins because He lays the requirement of our sins upon His Son. God the Father is holy and righteous and altogether just. He does not sweep my sin under the rug. He requires payment for it upon the head of His own Son. And so the Son is crushed in my place broken in your place, wounded in our place. He's rejected and pierced and crushed as the curse falls upon him. That God the Father looks upon his Son and sees our sin upon the Son and says to his Son upon the cross, the Lord curse you and the Lord cast you away. The Lord make his face to frown upon you and be angry with you. The Lord turn away from you and give you torment. And if, if it rests upon your ears with offense, what God the Father is saying to the Son at the cross is very severely this reality. May God damn you. The Son is damned. Bearing the weight of my sin. That is what is happening at the cross. But do you see what it produces? That because there is a substitute, because there is a savior, because there is a mediator, what does it produce for us? At the end of verse 5, his chastisement brings about our peace. And his wounds produce our healing so that what Jesus hears upon the cross as he cries out, Why have you forsaken me? As the Father bears the weight of the wrath upon him, we might experience peace and healing so that the words of the great benediction might be true of us, that the Father can say, The Lord bless you. The Lord keep you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. That God can truly say that to you because on the cross he cursed his son. That you and I are blessed because Jesus is cursed. Because the son has gone to the cross in our place. Who shall bear it? There is only one answer and it is Jesus Christ. And Isaiah says in verse 4, Surely, surely he has borne it. And the point of application for us that I really want us to rest in today is that Jesus did not withhold himself from bearing the weight of our sins. Loved ones, do not ever turn your face away from bearing his name. That you and I as Christian believers should bear the name of Jesus with all of its scandal in the gospel in the fullness of the truth of his love for us. Let us never forsake to bear his name. Let us speak of Jesus and let us rejoice to be called a Christian because Paul tells us you are not your own. If you're a Christian, you don't belong to you. You belong to Jesus because he has paid for your very life. And as we'll sing together in just a moment, Love so amazing and so divine demands my soul, my life, my very all.
And we have opportunity especially to reflect upon this on a good Friday and in the Lord's Supper that we are not our own. We are bought with a price. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. We thank you for his sacrificial death, his substitution in our place. Lord, may it rest upon us with severity the truth that Jesus experienced the hell that we deserve so that we will be able to experience the blessedness of your presence in heaven one day and then in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. It's all true because of what Jesus has done. And so, Lord, may our love for him be increased tonight. Help us to do that as we remember him as we eat and drink at the table, as we rejoice in confessing the name of Jesus, who is all of our hope, we pray in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.